Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. It's quiz time. Which of Wagner's operas features a character based on real-life cobbler poet Hans Sachs? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. We are delighted to invite you to the 18th Annual Opera News Awards. This year's honorees, soprano Lisa Davidson, soprano Erin Morley, and tenor George Shirley, will be feted at a black tie dinner gala on April 16th at the Plaza Hotel. Musical tributes by Stephanie Blythe and Latonia Moore will be performed in honor of the recipients, and this exciting gala will also feature appearances by Lawrence Brownlee, Joshua Hopkins, and Anna Maria Martinez. The Metropolitan Opera Guild acknowledges with great appreciation our sponsor for the 18th Annual Opera News Awards, the Lloyd E. Riddler Lawrence E. Deutsch Foundation. For more information or to purchase your ticket, please visit www.metguild.org awards or call us at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. If you guessed Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg or the Master Singers of Nuremberg, you are correct. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have the second of two episodes exploring the myth and mythos of Wagner's male characters with Guild lecturer Desiree Mays. In this episode, she will continue to explore the ideas of myth and mythos and how they are presented in both Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg and Lohengrin. We are going to start with Die Meistersinger, you might not think is the most obvious man of myth, but I'm going to argue that he is because he is human. He was beloved by his countrymen, by his community for compassion and selflessness. So we're going to play a little of the overture first, and it's uh, quite the opposite to what we have heard already, the more spiritual approach. Thank you. 
here we have Hans Sachs. He was born in Nuremberg in 1494. We're still talking about him. We're still hearing his story. He died in 1576. He was a cobbler and a poet and a musician. He apprenticed to a shoemaker at an early age, and he spent his apprentice years traveling from one town to another in Germany, learning his trade. He studied Meistergesang, the German art form of composition and song. Returning to Nuremberg, he became a master in both the Shoemakers Guild and the Meistersingers Guild. He wrote thousands of poems and more than 4,000 songs. So this was an active, creative human being. At age 60, he became the head of the Nuremberg Meistersingers in 1554, and he might never have been heard of again after his death were it not for Goethe, who wrote a little poem about him. This is how it went. Early within his workshop here, on Sundays stands our master dear, his dirty apron puts away, wearing a clean doublet today. He lets wax thread, hammer, and pincers rest, and lays his all within his chest. The seventh day he takes repose from many pulls and many blows. He had a skillful eye and true, and was full kind and loving too. In contemplation clear and pure, he had a tongue that charmed, grace and light flowed from every word, which made the muses rejoice in him, the master singer of their choice. The poem ends while thus he lives in secret blessed. Above him, in the clouds, rests an oak wreath, verdant and sublime, placed on his brow in after time. You can see how Wagner must have been drawn to this little story, right down to the crowning of Hans Sachs at the end of the tale. So Wagner's main source was a text by Johann Christoph Wagenseel, who published in 1697 the Nuremberg Chronicles, which described the Meistersingers Guild and their rules, along with the more well-known masters of the time. And actually, Wagner just commandeered those names uh, for the various masters of the different guilds and put them in the opera. He started out intending to write a comedy, but as time passed, the central focus of the piece became Hans Sachs. Rather as in the ring, I think uh, it seems that, that Wagner intended Wotan to be the great central focus of the ring, but he was flawed, and so it sort of passed, and I would argue the hero, heroine of the ring, is actually Brunhilde by the time he gets to the end of the whole thing. Anyway, um, Sachs was a man to whom Wagner could well relate for his love of music and his independence. In Wagner's telling of the tale, Sachs is a widower. He's suffering from the loss of a wife and child. He is alone. He is lonely. He is set apart from the rest. He loves the young Eva, whom he has known since she was a child. He puts his own love aside when he realizes she loves the young knight, Walter von Stossing. Sachs not only gives her up, but goes to great lengths to ensure that Walter wins and marries her. The guilds of the Meistersingers were bound by archaic rules and regulations, but rules can be changed, Hans Sachs pointed out. Narrow thinking must open up to new ways of doing things, open to newcomers, make them welcome. And here I think we clearly have the voice and argument of Wagner himself. Being open to new forms and ideas was always important to him. Sachs prevails, and at the end of the opera, it is he, not the young lovers, who stand center stage, lauded and crowned by the people, by the folk who love and revere him. 
Sachs counsels the Meistersingers to allow Walter's song, and ultimately he goes on to win the contest and the girl, the hand of Eva in marriage, while Sachs must stand aside and look on. So while he may be a lesser mythic figure in comparison to the supernatural heroes of Wagner's other operas, he is, I think, no less a legendary man, maybe because he is maybe more accessible than the mythic beings of antiquity. He's more like us. Sachs' love of his fellow men and women was born out of his own suffering and loss and is expressed in compassion and concern for the well-being of others. He acts to improve their lives with a deeper understanding of what it means to be part of the community and to look out for one another. Sachs reveals his pain and suffering in his great monologue, the Van monologue. This is the moment, I think, when Wagner confers greatness on Sachs, revealing in music both Sachs and Wagner's innermost feelings, their longings, their sufferings, and their belief in the greatness of German art. So let's look at this monologue in some detail. First of all, what is Van? What does it mean? Again, like myth, there are many meanings. In many ways, it is an untranslatable word. In writing to his sponsor, King Ludwig, Wagner said of the monologue, Van, Van, Überall, Van. This theme is brought out everywhere, he says. It is the theme which rules my life and the lives of all noble hearts, implying the king. Would we have to struggle, suffer, and make sacrifices if the world were not ruled by Van? So the monologue provides a serious moment in what was originally intended to be a comedic piece. Sachs or Wagner's reflections on life and human nature are the topic of Van and at the center of the opera. Van is most simply translated in English as madness, but the word has much deeper meanings than just madness. It can mean illusion, delusion, hallucination, monomania, folly. We all experience this kind of madness in our lives at one time or another. It's sort of a bit of a destructive streak that runs through human nature, a kind of crazy madness that manifests itself in different ways. We talk of the madness of being in love, right? We talk of midsummer madness. The actual quote in the Vaughan monologue, Midsummer Madness, really originates from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night play when Olivia comments, this very summer madness, referring to hot summer nights that lead to crazy behavior, foolish acts, and folly. Zach sings of the trouble set in motion the night before on Midsummer Eve, or Johannesnacht, to be followed by the sanity of Midsummer Day, Johannes Tag. He starts out musing about the lively street party of the night before, which ended up in a brawl involving everyone. But in the course of his meditation, Van leads Sachs away from violence to transforming the craziness into something constructive, putting Van energy into creativity and resolution rather than letting it vent freely. So how does this work? Sachs sees his role as mentor to channel this subconscious Dionysian energy, if you want to call it that, to take it away from dissension and put that energy into something positive. In this case, he actually encourages Walter to rein in his natural musical inspirations 
to fit the requirements of the Meistersinger's structure, to sort of rein it in. He sings, if madness won't leave us in peace, even here in Nuremberg, then let it be in the service of such works as are seldom successful in plain activity, and never so without a touch of madness. The monologue suggests that the irrational part of our nature can be channeled into creativity and positivity. Wagner himself could be described as a man plagued by his destructive self, competing with his creative self. Father Owen Lee asks, how could Wagner write and compose about redemption, salvation, and compassion, none of which characteristics he appeared to have himself? Think about this. Maybe he had to write and compose about these characteristics out of the abyss of his own personal need. Those are Father Lee's lines. I think they make great sense. Sachs actually sings. He says, a songbird sings because he has to, and because he has to, he can. So this is a serious pause for reflection in the middle of this opera. There is a sense of resignation, I think, as Sachs concludes he will put his energies into helping others, just as Wagner, who created Sachs in the opera, comes to some form of acceptance in this, his second-to-last opera, as he nears the end of his own volatile career.
Sachs is well known historically for associating the master songs he wrote with the Reformation because he was strongly influenced by the writings of Martin Luther. Sachs composed a famous song in honor of Martin Luther called Die Wittenbergische Nachtigall, the Wittenberg Nightingale. This was written in the early 1500s. In an inspired gesture, Wagner took the first eight lines of this poem and set them as a Lutheran chorale, which is sung by the entire chorus to honor Sachs as he enters for the song contest at the end of the opera. Here are the words that Sachs wrote. Awake, full soon will dawn the day. I hear within the coppice gray a rapture-laden nightingale. His song resounds o'er hill and dale. The night expires in western skies. A new day in the east doth rise. The red dawn floods the fields with light and puts the gloomy clouds to flight. Luther is clearly the nightingale of the song who draws into safe pasture those who have strayed into dark regions. For Luther awakens them from obscure night and leads them to the true light of day. Wagner then takes these words, which is about Sachs as well, sets them as a Lutheran chorale, and the chorus sings them to Hans Sachs as their beloved Hans Sachs enters in that last scene of the opera.
So Hans Sachs, one could argue, is alive and well, right? In the music of Wagner, this incredible, beautiful, the warmth, the love, the, uh, the enfolding of the people. That's what it's all about. So following Walter's winning the prize, Walter then refuses, we won't get into this, why you know, he's been badly treated by the master singers. They've been trying to reject him. Um, but he doesn't want to become a master singer. And Sachs gently chides him. Do not put down or denigrate what went before, he admonishes Walter. Scorn not the art masters. Honor their great art. Our masters have cared for art rightly in their way, cherished it truly as they thought best, and kept it noble as of old. These are Wagner's own words from Wagner's heart. At the very end of the opera, Walter is crowned as the winner, but Eva takes the laurel crown from Walter and places it on the head of Hans Sachs to the joy of the assembled citizens. Here are those final moments of Die Meistersinger. So here we have quite a different candidate for myth. This little tale from German folklore that Wagner loved describes a man who through his pain and suffering comes to feel compassion for his fellow beings and acts selflessly on their behalf, receiving in return the love of the people whom he is able to bring together in spite of their differences. Father Lee commented, what moves me most is the humanity of Hans Sachs he is a teacher who teaches not just rules and techniques, but how to think and feel. He loves music as much as he loves his trade. He helped Walter shape his intuitive inspirations. He guided Eva wisely in her unfolding love for Walter. He opposed Beckmesser, the one character bent on destroying the happiness of others. 
Sachs delves deeply into life, accepting its inevitable limitations while embracing it fully. He doubts, he fails, he prays, he wonders, and we can identify with his humanity. So this is a humbler myth, if you like, but I think a myth nevertheless, and one to emulate and from which there is a lot to learn. I had planned to keep Lohengrin till the end of this talk, but it makes much more sense to talk about it before Parseval, since chronologically uh, Lohengrin came early in Wagner's career in 1850, and Parseval came at the very end, his final opera in 1882, the final summation for Wagner and what he had been trying and achieved. So Lohengrin, which is being presented at the Met now, uh, directed by François Girard, I'm glad I was able to share a little of his thoughts with you, um, a sort of a prequel to his Met production, they say, uh, of uh, Parsifal. They're talking about doing the two side by side. Parsifal is Lohengrin's father, father and son, of doing the two together. But actually, it's very hard to do it that way, since really it's Lohengrin musically and then Parsifal. So I don't know how they'll manage that. Um, as you know, Piotr Bexauer sings Lohengrin. I believe he is transcendent in the role. I can't wait to see it tomorrow. Tamara Wilson is, um, is Elsa. Um, she is one of today's great Wagnerian sopranos. She sang Isolde for us in Santa Fe last summer, and, and it's an extraordinarily beautiful voice. So here we have a short reprise of the overture we heard at the beginning. how he was inspired by the story of Lohengrin based on his readings of medieval myth. He said, Lohengrin was an unknown being of utmost grace and purest virtue who moves and wins all hearts. He is the embodied wish of the yearner who dreams of happiness in a far-off land he cannot sense. This unknown being appears from across the ocean waves arriving in a swan-drawn skiff over the sea to the banks of the river Scheldt literally a knight in shining armor. Lohengrin rescues downtrodden innocence, Elsa, and weds the young woman. But when she asks him who he is and where he comes from, he has to return to the land of the Grail and leave his beloved behind. That, in a, in a nutshell, is what uh, Lohengrin's tale is about. Now, Elsa, who should not be portrayed as a helpless, victimized woman, as she is so often presented, speaks or sings rather as if in a dream. When the king asks her to respond to the charges that she killed her younger brother, she answers as if transfigured how once on lonely dark days she had fallen into a trance and saw a knight approaching who seemed to be the very symbol of purity, a golden horn at his belt and leaning on his sword. She sings, Midst clouds of light he soared with words so low and tender, he brought renewed life to me, my guardian, my defender, 
my champion he shall be. Elsa almost conjures up Lohengrin, just as Senta, in a way, conjured up the Dutchman in her fascination with the portrait. There's a lot of recurring themes, and when I work through all these operas all at once, I suddenly say, oh, the format is actually fairly similar, what happens here. But it works in every case. Elsa is presented by Wagner as a visionary, a woman of intuition. She is ecstatic when Lohengrin materializes and he, in turn, is drawn to her and her plight. He promises to defend her, but in turn, she must agree to a promise he asks of her. Elsa, if you will wed me, if I save this land from the foe, a promise I must ask of thee. Never, as you love me, shall you question from whence I came, or what is my race or name. He asks her twice, and she responds wholeheartedly. My hero, my defender, how could I question who you are? As you guard my name and land, so I will cherish thy command. Echoes again here of the Dutchman, who exacts a promise from center to be true. Neither woman actually knows her chosen beloved before she meets him. It is love at first sight, and both women commit themselves fully until parted inevitably by death. We are talking about opera here, so... When Ortrud, the evil woman bent on destroying Elsa, suggests that Elsa not trust Lohengrin, she must ask who he is, Elsa is confused, but at this point at the beginning, she insists on her unconditional confidence in Lohengrin and insists that his prohibition not to ask his name is dear to her. She trusts him. Lohengrin, in a difficult place, wants to be loved for himself, not because he is a supernatural being, but he finds himself lauded by the people of Rabant. They praise his coming as their hope for happiness, believing in the leadership of the man who has come to them from afar. Wagner reported, The infirm and the blind are brought in, all begging to be held by him on his way to church. Lohengrin is wedded to Elsa to this, dare I say it, mythic music, which you'll all know, played at innumerable weddings worldwide, ever since it was composed. 
But after a time, curiosity and orchard get the better of Elsa. In the original story, they wed uh, Elsa and uh, Lohengrin, and they have several children, actually. A long time passes before she asks the forbidden question. She is filled with anxious doubt and wonders why Lohengrin doesn't trust her with his secret. Lohengrin assures her, I come not from night and woe, but from a home of light and bliss. But Elsa insists, as Orchard's motif threads its way through the scene, Orchard, the one who had caused Elsa to doubt. Elsa tells Lohengrin that as by magic he had come to her, so by magic he may be taken away. Lohengrin, knowing at this moment that he has to leave if she insists, sings, Now forever, alas, our love must end. Lohengrin requests the people to assemble the next day when he will reveal to Elsa and the people who he is and where he comes from. Morning comes, and sadly, Lohengrin tells his story to the sound of the grail theme from a castle far away called Montsalvat, a shining temple, and within the temple the holiest of treasures, the divinely blessed grail brought from heaven to earth by angels and given to the keeping of pure men. The grail protects and preserves the knights dedicated to its service. Whosoever is summoned by the grail is endowed with supernatural might. Evil is powerless before him. Some are called to go to distant lands to champion the cause of innocence like Lohengrin. Nothing can prevail against the knight as long as the secrecy of his origin remains unrevealed. If disclosed, the knight must return whence he came. His father, Lohengrin, tells the gathered crowd is Parsifal. His knight am I, and Lohengrin is my name. This is uh, the very end where he has to leave, and apparently this is where Piotr Bissauer is quite amazing in this production. He sings, In a far-off land, inaccessible to your steps, there is a castle by the name of Montsalvat. A light-filled temple stands within it, more beautiful than anything on earth. Therein is a vessel of wondrous blessing that is watched over as a sacred relic, that the purest of men might guard it. It was brought down by a host of angels. Every year a dove descends from heaven to fortify its wondrous power. It is called the Grail. The purest, most blessed faith is imparted through it to the Brotherhood of Knights. Whosoever is chosen to serve the Grail is armed by it with heavenly power. The darts of evil prove powerless against him. Once he has seen it, the shadow of death flees him. Even he who is sent by it to a distant land, appointed as a champion of virtue, will not be robbed of its holy power provided that he, as its knight, remain unrecognized there. That's the rule of the law. For so wondrous is the blessing of the grail that when it is revered, it shuns the eye of the uninitiated. Thus no man should doubt the knight, for if he is recognized, he must leave you. I, Lohengrin, was sent to you by the grail. My father, Parsifal, wears its crown. I, its knight, am called Parsifal. And the singer here is Brian Sullivan from uh, Met Performance 1959 with uh, Thomas Shippers conducting Infernum Land. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, the swan now returns. It's time for Lohengrin to go, and his last act is to return Gottfried, Elsa's lost brother, who was bewitched and turned into the swan by Ortrid. Uh, Gottfried kneels before the king and runs to his sister. He will grow to rule the land, and again, through him, peace and order will be restored. So with this opera, Wagner moves in a new direction. Remember, this is early on. This is before the ring. Lohengrin comes with Dutchman and Tannhäuser, those little trio before he gets into the more serious shifts gear. He knows what it is he seeks, and he's confident now he can achieve success. He has assembled the pieces of the story in his head. He writes the music and the libretto and moves forward. So Lundgren is set in Antwerp, and actually in this case in actual time in history, the 10th century, during the rule of Henry I of Saxony when they were at war with the Hungarians. Beyond this historical fact, however, the characters are far from normal human beings. Lohengrin, the knight in shining armor, is the son of Parzival. Elsa von Brabant is the damsel in distress, endangered by the destructive forces, good and evil, of Telramund and the evil sorceress Ortrud. When Wagner tried to explain the story of Lohengrin to his friends, 
he compared it to the tale of Zeus and Semele. In this classic myth, Zeus, the great sky god, left Olympus for the love of a mortal woman, Semele. And Semele had no idea who Zeus was and asked her lover to reveal himself, like Loanger and Nelson. This was the forbidden question she was not to ask, but ask she did, and Zeus came to her all thunder, light, and godly magnificence. At the sight of this vision, she was struck dead on the spot. The breaking of an imposed taboo was a very familiar theme in myth, in fairy tale and storytelling, of course. Do not ask the forbidden question, starting again with do not eat of the fruit of the Garden of Eden. The music, the great myth for us, music-loving peoples, is, as I said, Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus, a musician, charms the spirits of Hades and wins back his dead wife Eurydice on one condition. He may not look at her on the return journey to Earth, but of course he looks to see if she is following him and instantly loses her again. The rules were set by the underworld, and in this case is not the woman, but the man who breaks the rules, Orpheus. Remember Pandora, who was instructed not to open the box, but she did, and she found it full of evil. In the Greeks, however, there was an element of hope in their myths after disaster struck for breaking the rules. For Semele, her unborn child is rescued, transferred to Zeus's thigh, and becomes Dionysius when he is born. When Pandora looks at the bottom of the box, she finds one tiny creature left. It is Elphus, the spirit of hope. The gods relent with Orpheus, and he is reunited with Eurydice as they become stars in the heaven. The Dutchman and Santa may die, but their souls are united in death. Owen Lee wrote, The myth describes instant sorrow in the breaking of a taboo, followed by ultimate good, which ensues. In fairy tales, taboos are rife. Don't do this or disaster will strike. A warning to all children to obey the rules. Father Lee suggests the breaking of a taboo is maybe necessary in order to break through to a different consciousness. And this may mean a loss of innocence, the loss of the Garden of Eden. Woman is intuitive. Women tend to break the rules. It is Elsa who, in the beginning, remember, finds the means of her salvation. She is the one who dreams up Lohengrin to defend her. But it is also Elsa who asks the forbidden question and brings about the loss of the man she loves. In defense of Elsa and the appropriateness of her asking the question, it should be noted that in the mythic epic from which this was taken, it was understood that the Knights of the Grail serve the Grail, and a condition of the Grail's service was that while its knights may descend to earth for noble deeds, they may not become part of the world. These knights represented a spiritual order whose service and motives must be accepted with unquestioning faith. Life, you know, is not new. Life has always been filled with rules and regulations, conditions we have to adhere to. Some are cautionary, like the Dutchman. Do not curse the devil and nature, or you may end up damned. There is a children's tale. I love this tale from the southwest of La Llorena, a woman whose children drowned in an arroyo, a river. To this day, she can be heard crying for her children. And woe betide any child who wanders too near the water. She will take and drown them. 
that is the best deterrent for kids to stay away from the edge of the river, right? So there are state laws. We have all sorts of laws devised for our good that we obey in order to be part of the society in which we live. There are biblical laws, many, thou shalt not kill. The Meister singers had strict rules about their composition. I take issue a little bit with Philip Kennicott, who wrote in this month's Opera News, you've probably read, that, quote, Lohengrin compels ignorance in Elsa. He denies his wife the freedom of thought, the right to question, to doubt, or to think. So whatever happened to trust? May she not trust that he will not disappear in a puff of smoke? Must she question the laws of the grail itself? We are and always have been structured by laws and rules, men as well as women. By extension, Lohengrin is asking the people of Brabant with Elsa simply as their representative, she's actually their queen, not to ask his name. And he has good reason. He knows that just like the outcome of all who ask the forbidden question, that tragedy will result. Elsa agrees for love of him she will not ask. She trusts him. So she does make a free choice until the poison is slipped into her ear by the evil Ortrud, suggesting maybe you should ask. Kennicott, I think, analyzes Elsa's motive from a 21st century point of view. But then he does back down a bit in the same article, saying we can overanalyze these characters, thus detracting from our experience of the opera. Now, from Wagner's point of view in the 19th century, he said of Lohengrin long after its premiere, Elsa is the unconscious, the intuitive in whom Lohengrin's consciousness longs to be fulfilled. It's quite a different point of view. Wagner, in a way, preempted Carl Jung in suggesting the human psyche was made up of two parts, the male and the female. Each could fulfill the longing of the other. And that, I think, is what appears to be happening in this opera with Lohengrin and Elsa. We haven't talked about mythic props or animals, symbols and metaphors mostly expressed by Wagner in recurring themes or motifs that constantly keep the image or meaning behind the symbol in our minds. The swan was a symbol of transformation from what was to what would or could be, and in not always a positive way. In a lovely line in the same article by Philip Conicott, he reminds us that the swan in Lohengrin is, quote, one of the most fraught figures in the opera, the metamorphic enchantment of a young man by a pagan witch. The metamorphic swan also appears in Parsifal, implying that Parsifal and Lohengrin, father and son, were harbingers of change and transformation. One last little aside on the swan. King Ludwig was so enamored of this beautiful creature with all its Wagnerian symbolism that he had a small lake put into one of the cave-like rooms in his castle at Neuschwanstein, new swan castle, and he sailed around this little lake in a little boat that was the shape of a swan. So where, you may ask, does fantasy begin and end in such a case? Uh, Brunhilde's horse Grania is rather like Brunhilde's shadow self, always faithful, guarding her, there for her through the numerous trials of the ring. It's only when Grania is not by her side, when she gives him to Siegfried, that things go wrong. Uh, the ring has a fiery dragon, a symbol of greed and materialism. This dragon will not give up the gold at any cost, even if it means burying himself away in a cave to guard it. So come the spear and the grail cup. 
They are mythic symbols in Parsifal, just as the miraculous sword called Notum was magical in the ring cycle. This sword, of course, originated from the ancient story of the young King Arthur, who alone was able to pull the sword Excalibur out of a rock in the lake, just as later Wagner has Sigmund pull his sword from the tree in Hunding's house. So they're all connected. So let's leave Noenger now and move on to his father, Parsifal. Prior to composing Parsifal, and much influenced by the teachings of the Buddha, Wagner seriously considered writing an opera de Saga on the life of the Buddha. The Buddha's journey fits the criteria for myth perfectly. In Departure, the first stage, the young prince Gautama secretly leaves his father's palace and dressed as a monk, wanders the earth for eight years, at the end of which time, after terrible hardship and years of meditation, he achieved enlightenment, the second step, fulfillment. His bliss was so great that he thought to keep his wisdom to himself, but Brahma descended from the heavens and persuaded him to become the teacher of gods and men. And Buddha moved back to the cities, bestowing the boon of knowledge of the way. This is the return. Now, Wagner transmuted the Buddha's story into that of Parsifal, whose journey is not dissimilar. Parsifal leaves the forest, endures trials and suffering, and attains enlightenment and returns to the Grail Castle. In Buddhist terms, Parsifal is a bodhisattva, one who is on the way to Buddhahood, but who postpones the ultimate state of bliss in order to work for the salvation of others and to serve mankind. Like the Buddha, Parsifal has to complete a long journey, an odyssey, before reaching the Grail and enlightenment. The prelude to Parsifal is another long, exquisite anguish beginning a unison of violins and cellos supported by a clarinet and bassoon. Then a cor anglaise and a long, drawn-out melody suggests all that is to come. This amazing prelude is known as the love feast, but wrapped up in it are promises of innocence, of purity, holiness, motifs of the dove, of the swan, of the bells at Montsalvat, uh, in the hills of Spain where the opera takes place. There are also images of guilt, suffering, and yearning for purification, all contained in this absolutely exquisite slow opening. Here is a little of that prelude.
Since the grail is central to the story of Parsifal, we should address briefly the question of what is the grail. For our purposes with Parsifal, the Aquarian grail is a contemporary today theory which states that the grail is a mystical, maybe mythical concept, not a real object at all, but an allegory for the spiritual paths and quests for union sought while here on earth. This grail is to be found within following a search for achievement to a higher level of spirituality. This line of thinking brings us, of course, to the theory that most influenced Wagner in Parsifal, namely the theory of mitleid or compassion. Father Lee said, mitleid is when the world's sufferings are alleviated by acts of mitleid or compassion done by selfless people who have seen so deeply into the human condition that they feel the sufferings of others in themselves. We hear early on from Gunnermans, the older knight, about the Grail community, which is languishing because of the suffering of the king. They wait for the pure fool made wise by compassion. Compassion, the saving grace and focus of this great work. The key to understanding it, I think, lies in this little phase. Pure fool made wise by compassion. In the opera, Parsifal is a youth who makes his appearance out of the forest, having killed a swan with his bow and arrow a sacrilegious act of which he is ignorant, a pure fool. Siegfried in the ring emerges out of a similar forest in much the same way. Both young men are unaware of their birthright. Both are seeming orphans, innocent, with no schooling other than the skills needed to survive in the forests, and neither one has any inkling that there is, in fact, a quest that they would be called to follow. This is perhaps a universal state of being. Are not the youth of today only dimly aware that there is a path to follow, a purpose, a quest as to the meaning of it all? Some of us are still questing, right? <laughs> Some of us are still children, perhaps. That's good. So how does one find that path and where might it lead? The way is strewn with joy, sorrow, happiness, pain, suffering, and the mix is different for everyone. Parsifal knows nothing of this at the start of the opera. His is a clean slate, a boy who finds himself in trouble for having killed a swan, but a boy who nevertheless has been called mysteriously to the Grail Castle, which only reveals itself to a chosen few. The music in the scenes between Gonemans and Parsifal seems to rest in a place of no movement and no time. This is deliberate on Wagner's part. Rhythm and meter are blurred until finally there is a sense of being beyond time. So I think this is where Wagner wanted his audience to be, in a place where time and space don't exist, of timelessness, spacelessness. Setting Parzival in real places now or then was never really Wagner's intention. In fact, Wieland Wagner also staged Parzival on a completely bare stage with minimal lighting. At the start, Parsifal asks in his innocence, who is the grail? Gunnermans tells him, if you are called, the knowledge will come to you. Gunnermans hopes the untutored boy from the forest is the fool the grail knights will be healed by him. Gunnermans explains that a holy vision appeared to Amphotas, uh, our leader, and words of mystic meaning shone before him, made wise through pity, the blameless fool, wait for him, the one I choose. So his quest has not yet begun when he meets uh, Gurnemans in the beginning. The supreme test comes then at Klingzor's castle, 
a magical zone of magnified power that again does not exist. Beyond the gates of Klingzor's castle is darkness and the unknown, but Parseval is not intimidated. Like Siegfried confronting the dragon, he is not afraid. He crosses the threshold into a new realm of experience, penetrating the veil of the unknown and challenging the guardians at the gate. And then he comes to meet Kundri. Kundri, the ultimate seductress, uh, who has lived many lifetimes through many centuries, condemned to an eternity of endless wandering, and held in the power of Klingsor, who forces her to seduce the Knights of the Grail. In a way, she echoes the Dutchman in her damnation, in her wandering, longing, and yearning. She is first seen by Parseval as the epitome of beauty, the answer to unimagined desires, the bliss longed for in every hero's quest. She is mother, sister, mistress, bride. She is the archetype of temptress, a being Parseval could not have envisioned in his wildest dreams. In her attempted seduction, she employs all the techniques of modern psychology. She approaches him first as his mother, the unattainable mother, the desired but forbidden mother, which Kundri suddenly appears to become. She represents utter ruin to the young man whose innocence provides him no means to resist her. I bring you a message from your mother, Kundri tells the stricken Parsifal as she leans over him and gives him a kiss that is anything but maternal. He starts up in a shock, a flash of illumination has come. He knows, he understands, he feels the pain in his chest, the same pain Amphitar suffers and suddenly knows it was Kundri's embrace that destroyed the, the Grail King. Let's hear a little then. This is the moment at which after the kiss he realizes, die Wunde, die Wunde, Amphotas, the wound is burning in me. I saw thy wound bleeding. It bleeds now in me. Let's, let's listen to that. So Parsifal has this beer and he returns. He finds his way back uh, to the Good Friday music to a meadow. 
At the very, let me see, there's a quote here I don't want to miss. Gurnemans leads Parseval to the Grail Hall where he hears Amphotas with the spear. T.S. Eliot summed up the end of the hero's journey in his poem, The Four Quartets, when he wrote, The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Campbell suggests that the coming together of the two worlds, the world of myth and that of the normal world, are in fact one. At the very end, Parseval stands center stage holding the grail aloft. Wagner said in his essay, Religion and Art, that which unites us in the common practice of our faith and which revered anew in the tragic teachings of great spirits uplifts us to the height of compassion, the knowledge given in manifold forms of the need of redemption. And here we come into the two words, to redeem the redeemer. Uh, Erlösen can be translated as release or delivery, thus Amphotas is released or delivered from his pain. It can also mean salvation, for Kundri Erlösen is the release from the unending recycle of births, um, her release from karma, if you like. The Redeemer is redeemed symbolically when the grail and the spear are united and the world made whole again. It can also refer to Parseval and others who, through their service, like Lohengrin, assist and heal. Wagner, in fact, did answer the question, what is uh, redeem the Redeemer? Those who inspire compassion in others, in you and I, heal themselves and others and provide the means for salvation or redemption for many. So let's hear now some of the final moments as we have to finish, I'm afraid.
We've covered a lot of ground today. I think hopefully not too much. I hope that you found this interesting, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you. That was Guild lecturer Desiree Mays discussing the myth and mythos of Wagner's male characters. Wagner's Lohengrin is currently on the Met stage in a brand new production by director Francois Girard until April 1st. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on all your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.